Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. The Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow, founder and station manager for Krypton Radio, and with me is Susan Fox, the station's executive producer. Science! <laughs> with us today, we have Dr. David Penzak, uh, who is such a complex and interesting individual that rather than trying to launch into a complex and detailed introduction of exactly what he is, I thought we'd just talk to him directly and find out. We, we see science fiction about, about brilliant, mad scientists. Are they brilliant? Are they mad? It's hard to tell from the outside. Welcome to the show, Doctor. <laughs> now we've got a real one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, the only sanity clause I've got is the one that comes down the chimney on December 25th. <laughs> oh, you can't fool me. There ain't no such thing as a sanity clause. <laughs> well, if you light a big enough fire, he comes down quick. And goes back up quick. <laughs> yipe, yipe, yipe. Uh, so, so um, you've got one of the more interesting, uh, interesting personal histories of anybody we've run across so far. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born when I was very young, which is a good start. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. Old as his and tongue, and not quite as old as his teeth. From the first moment, but I was born and raised in Princeton, New Jersey. My father was a physicist at RCA, and he knew a lot of the people who were involved in the Manhattan Project, and J. Robert Oppenheimer, and Albert Einstein, who was actually a fairly good family friend. He was, uh, he was your next-door neighbor, wasn't he? No, he lived a couple of blocks away, but he liked my mother's cooking enough he could have been a next-door neighbor. <laughs> the thing that is most significant to me about him is that he kept insisting on my parents that I have a chance to be a child. So as a child, he will learn to be curious. He will learn to ask questions. He will learn that things are not always the way they seem. Mm -hmm. So when he grows up and can actually put a couple of facts together, he will look at the world enormously different than the average child. Now, my father used to insist this happened because... I fell off his lap one day and I hit my head on the concrete pavement, but I'm assuming I've recovered from the traumatic brain injury by now. <laughs> That's a funny but thing. I sort of had the same 
same thing happened to me, except I Yeah, but you became a, you know, you were influenced by the concrete. (laughs) Well, I just made a concrete contribution to him. (laughs) But the the real abstract and concrete is that Professor Einstein used to ask me why. You know how kids love to drive their parents nuts with why, Daddy? Oh, yeah. Well, it's really different when this soft-spoken, quiet guy with hair that looked like he'd stuck his finger in an electric outlet kept asking me why. I didn't know even really who he was when I was growing up. He was just my father's friend, Mr. Einstein, Professor Einstein, Dr. Einstein. My parents called him all kinds of things, but it was always with great respect. And they used to sit there and watch while he would play in the sandbox with me. And he would show me things, and then he'd ask such questions as, if I pour water on this, why will the sandcastle disappear? And let's see, he died in 1956, so I was eight years old. So he really impacted mm-hmm. me from about the time I was five until shortly before he died. But I can still close my eyes and see his face and hear his soft voice with the accent. And he used to get me so frustrated because, for example, with the sandcastle, I'd say, well, the water washed it away. He said, but how did it do that? And finally, mm-hmm. he took out a little magnifying glass from his pocket. He said, let's take a look at a grain of sand. Have you ever seen one before? And the kind of thing I learned from him is that you shouldn't make assumptions about anything in your world because it may always be very different. And I've been very fortunate that my son has learned similar idiosyncrasies from me after I retired from DuPont and we'll get to that masochism later (laughs) oh uh, my gosh I started teaching at Wharton Business School and I developed a course entitled Intervention the Processes of Innovation and Invention one of the questions I used to always ask my students is how would you speed up the game of golf what's the problem and they all quickly came to the point that if you make a bad shot, you can waste a lot of time hunting for the golf balls. But as we would talk through the exercise, if your golf is so bad that you lose balls, it's a social event for you, not a competitive sport. So you're actually grateful for the chance to go chat with your buddies. Golf ball manufacturers are thrilled that you lose golf balls because they get to sell you more. So when it comes to clubs, I'm sorry, go ahead. I've got, no, I've got a question for you about innovations, the idea of... Uh of uh, innovation and invention. When did you come up with that? you got you got to let him finish that sentence, hon. Well, it'll actually become clear when I finish the story. Okay. Yeah, you got to well, let him finish the story. Yeah, I have, because I have a note about that, and uh, okay. I, I'm well, curious. So, the go ahead. were happy you played slowly, because they still charge you the same amount. Well, I asked my son, Jacob, who was maybe seven at the time, and he thought for no more than about 30 seconds, it'll daddy, that's simple. Girl dogs smell different than boy dogs. So if you take whatever it is that makes a girl dog smell the way she does and spray it out on a golf ball, bring a boy dog with you and he'll find the ball by smell because his nose is a thousand times more sensitive than yours. And I was absolutely guppy mouth because this little seven-year-old boy was right on target and more innovative and more imaginative than any of my graduate students or executives had ever been. <laughs> I may never get that ball back. <laughs> he still doesn't like to play golf. 
But I challenged him then to come up with inventions that would make this happen. Because we took the golf ball and we did spray some dog urine on it. My wife was very patient through some of these experiments. <laughs> and our dog was absolutely enchanted. He found that ball in a heartbeat. One thing is he didn't want to give it back. Uh-huh. Yeah. I called it. There and we it go. didn't play very well with big tooth marks in it either. <laughs> so I challenged Jacob to come up with inventions that would solve the problem. So he got the, the normal ideas, having watched science fiction, theater, and things like that, that radar reflects off metal very well. So he took a golf ball, and he wrapped it in aluminum foil. And he said, let's just bring a radar gun with us, and the radar will reflect back off that, and we'll be able to find the ball. And we probably spent a whole afternoon as he was trying to come up with inventions. And... The reason I call it intervention is because he was coming up with things which were unknown to him, even though they might be known to millions of other people. You have to find a way to get people to think outside the box that they have grown up in. It doesn't matter if somebody else has already done it. It's challenging them and stimulating them to think imaginatively. So if, if you think about it, the way corporations try to teach us to function is identify a problem, come up with a solution, turn around and look back. Like, how do I get to this endpoint from where I began? Well, that's a really bad idea because it assumes that the first idea you come up with will be absolutely your best. At least in my case, it's never been the best. So intervention involves looking at the problem and trying to make it more general, more specific, and iterating that way until you can make a list of what any acceptable solution has to have in it. Then you go hunt for a technology or a procedure which will solve the problem. And very often you'll find that the solution or the problem that you decide to solve bears very little resemblance to the problem you started out with. Why is that the case? Think of the world as a jigsaw puzzle, and every year we pick up a few new pieces and we try to figure out what to do with them. Well, the older we get, unless you wind up getting elected to Congress or some equally mind-numbing experience, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. have more pieces that you can assemble to solve problems. And the difference between invention and innovation is with innovation, you're taking the pieces that you have and you're putting them together to solve the problem. With invention, you're recognizing, oops, I'm missing a piece. So by looking at the pieces around it, you can figure out what the missing piece would have to have looked like to solve it. And that's really the only difference between invention and innovation. I see. It's really simple. I see. That's that's an explanation of these that, uh, uh, of a kind of clarity that I haven't heard before. I'm, I'm, I'm curious though, uh, the term innovation uh, has appeared in my life uh, the first time with respect to Walt Disney's. Um, um, uh, what's there's a display help, at Disneyland. Help, help me out, Susan. Fantasia. I said there's a display at Disneyland called Innovations. Uh-huh. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's the one uh, at, at uh, what's the name of the park? Epcot. Epcot. Thank you. 
I feel like such an idiot. I, I don't know why that left my well, mind. They've got it in, in Disneyland also. In the yes, but Coast. Epcot Center as yeah. it's the, the one of the first things they built with was the the Innoventions Pavilion. And, Correct. And um, you're I, not going to get in trouble with Disney, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I thought quite. I thought this might be something like the reverse. You know that they, they may have gotten the idea from him. That's it's possible. possible. It was not an original word, but it was the only way to describe in a short enough phrase that graduate students would actually read the title of the course before signing up mm. to see what the pieces were. Oh, um, I, I can see that. that the, the inspiration that, uh, that something even as simple as putting together a word like that would create, uh, I think, would attract students right there. Certainly, just, the ones who were open. That sounds to like innovation. something. Yeah, that sounds like a, a course I would certainly want to take. How well, different from the rest of grad school? <laughs> I enjoy torturing my students because I've, well, I've been a programmer since I was eight years old, and they started calling me the silicon paleontologist because mm. I program in Fortran still. So I had to get even mm. with. Oh, one day I gave them a 10-question multiple-choice test, but every answer to every question was correct. They're so used to multiple-choice tests where one is correct and the other three are wrong. They were just dying a thousand deaths trying to figure out how on earth do we answer this test. (laughs) How do you choose between several right answers? Well, everybody got 100 by definition. All they had to do was sign their name. <laughs> uh-huh. But one day they came in and I said, all right, you have, we're having a pop quiz. You have five assignments. And I want you to send a man to the moon for a dollar or less. I want you to eliminate all pollution in the United States in 30 days. I want you to raise $10 billion by lunchtime tomorrow. And I want you to remove the Rocky Mountains. And I don't remember what the fifth one was. Because you have 30 minutes. And they struggled and they fumed. You could practically see their pens burning a trail across the paper. When they turn their exams, I tear them up and throw them all out and say, you all failed. And they looked at me in horror. and said, you, you can't do that. We had to have a 3.9 GPA just to get into your course. We've never failed anything in our lives. I said, but this time you did. Because not one of you asked a single question. You assumed, because I was in a position of responsibility, that I had the wisdom to know exactly what needed to be done, the breadth of vision to articulate all the possible ways to do it, and your only responsibility is to be a loyal soldier and do exactly what I tell you without asking a single question. They looked really, really sheepish, but they got the message. And that was great, because... They had never been given permission to respectfully ask questions before. And that was just a huge revelation to them. I had a a similar experience when I was in India training animators. Uh, The the mindset is very much uh, along the lines of don't ask questions, do what the teacher says. If you can't do it, don't let on that you have no idea what's going on. And I think this is a, uh, this is a very horrible way to, uh, uh, to invite, um, 
uh, scientific method or, or um, and yet you know, to promote st- creativity. And, and yet, yet that's the standard in both academia yeah, and the corporate world. It is. <laughs> and, and it's very, it's very much more, um, uh, it's very, very much more prevalent there than here. But, uh, but the same principle applies. It's just, I just thought it was an interesting because it was sort of the whole problem in microcosm. Well, after the show, we should talk further because my wife used to be technical director of animation for Nickelodeon Mm. for Disney, and she had a lot of the animation work done in India and Pakistan, and she's got some stories to tell. Oh, I'll I'll bet. It just fits in so precisely with what you're saying. It's an incredibly small world. (laughs) If you think about it, though, we're trained as human beings to do four things. Rote repetition, accidental discovery, innovation, and mm-hmm. invention, which is directed discovery. The really incredible people of our generations, and even going back, are the ones who noticed that something wasn't the way they expected it to be and asked why. And the better you are at asking why, the better you are at coming up with solutions. As just an example, it's a relatively widely held myth that the brewing industry began in Mesopotamia about 3,000, 3,500 years ago. In fact, it began in China almost 8,000 years ago. Some mass spectroscopy of mummified early hominids and their refuse showed that they had been eating fruit that had apparently fallen to the ground and started to ferment, producing alcohol. It took them a couple hundred years to work the whole thing out, but if you picked up fruit that was on the ground and looked just the right way, you could get quite a buzz on from doing it. <laughs> well, the coffee industry started because some goats in Yemen wound up eating Arabica beans and got real frisky. So there are many things that have passed in front of our eyes, and if you don't stop and say, gee, that's interesting, I wonder why you'll miss out on many, many things. Part of this is because of the way we're taught. Uh, Suppose I asked you to name a car manufacturer that begins with F. You can do that instantly. Yes, of course. But if I ask you to name a car manufacturer that ends in I, you don't store it that way in your brain. You have to make a list of all the car manufacturers you can think of and, and then search through them to see which one ends in I. I was going to mm-hmm. say Audi. <laughs> I was going to say Ferrari, Bugatti. Well, I like Ferrari better than Audi because I used to have an Audi. But <laughs> So very much of what we do is constrained by how we are taught how to think. One of the things that I did when I was on the faculty at Penn that drove them nuts was I would take some of their demonstration elementary school classes and hold them jointly with my MBA and DBA students. Hmm. And the reason for that was young kids are by and large only exposed to authority figures in adults. So they don't think of adults as people. They think of them as mean old ogres with big sticks. Uh And people the age of graduate students, the only youngsters they've dealt with are their younger siblings who were there to torture or something equivalent, and that's it. So they never think of youngsters as people either. They're screaming diapers who who break things. So when I started to have groups that were 
half eight and 10 year olds and a half 25 year olds. It was so fascinating to watch just how they learn to communicate and cooperate with one another. Something they've never been exposed to. Well, that's, um, I think, I think one of the essential elements is, uh, is just plain old curiosity, just being interested in what's going on around you. And, uh, and I'm, myself, I've been curious about everything around me all my life. I'm, I'm fascinated by everything that passes in front of my eyes. Uh, but I note, and I have noted through my life, that most people are not this way. And uh, I was wondering what your thoughts were on why this might be. There's a couple of answers to that, but the biggest is fear. And then those fears, not to steal from Franklin Roosevelt and his four fears, people are afraid of looking stupid in front of somebody else. They're afraid of wasting time and having nothing come of it. They're afraid that somebody will steal their idea. And while they don't like to talk about it, they're afraid they're going to succeed. Look at all the processes in industry and science where somebody came up with a great idea and a lot of people lost their jobs as a result. Oh, yes. So the worst fear is that you might succeed and then you and your friends will lose your jobs as a result because corporate America has no conscience. Yeah, I've, I've actually experienced that. Hmm. Uh, now we're back to animation business. Well, I've worked on worked on uh, some major automation projects for Technicolor in Westland, Virginia. And my job was to make the, uh, the packing line uh, for putting the video cassettes much more efficient. And mm-hmm. our team succeeded. And when we succeeded, we put about uh, 40% of the workforce uh, out of a job, uh, in, including ourselves, because we'd finished the work. So... Again, a microcosm example of, of the principle in action. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but sometimes innovation comes from the strangest sources. Have you ever watched on QVC or one of these other late-night blither shows <clears throat> and seen an advertisement for this plastic template that you use to fold your shirts so when you put them in a suitcase, they don't wrinkle? You've seen it, yeah. Well, it turns out that was developed by... An illiterate housekeeper in San Antonio, Texas, whose daughters were complaining that when mom did their laundry, the shirts were too wrinkled. So she came up with something. I mean, I would have strangled them, but she's a mother. I guess she has to be. (laughs) But the woman had amazing insight because she used duct tape and cardboard, which are two of the key ingredients in almost every innovation since... MacGyver started walking on this earth. (laughs) Well, the physician who she was working for loved the idea, and he mentored her and funded it. became a hugely successful business. She still works for him out of loyalty. Still doesn't read and write English, but her chauffeur drives her there in Rolls Royce every day. (laughs) the, The reason I love to tell that story is loyalty is such an amazing motivator in getting things done. Sometimes we won't do it because it needs to be done or we want the money, but if it's somebody we know or care about who can benefit from it, then we will 
go through brick walls to do it. That is, that's an amazing truth, but it is true. Uh, We've been, we've been putting this radio station together and uh, we've been running it for four years. And, and the people that have come forward to help us and move it forward have, have been incredibly loyal and very inventive in the process. Yeah. As just one example, I have a good friend whose son was a platoon leader in Iraq. Mm. And an IED went off nearby, and his son got horribly burned by the fireball that resulted. He was fortunate that he did not survive. It would have been a horrible existence if he had. But his father came to me and he said, What? Is there anything you can come up with that will protect our troops better? I know hundreds of thousands of fathers who would happily contribute to the development of this because it's their sons and our troops who are saving our lives. I thought about it for about 10 minutes and realized that the problem was what the uniforms are that we put the soldiers into. For some reason, somebody insists they have to be nylon. Oh. Um, well, nylon you, is going to melt. You might as well dress them in napalm. Uh, yeah, that's a nice way to put it. <clears throat> and so I started talking with some of my friends down at the Pentagon, and they said, well, th- there's nothing better unless you can repeal the laws of thermodynamics and raise the melting point of nylon by 500 degrees. Well, All right. I don't... <laughs> Well, that would be nice, but I'd rather have a time machine so I'd go back and get some first-growth Bordeaux's at reasonable prices. <clears throat> but I can't do that either. <clears throat> but I thought about it for a few minutes and realized it doesn't have to be nylon as long as it has the properties that nylon does that are of value to you. <clears throat> so I made a fabric out of fiberglass cloth <clears throat> with a Teflon coating and a little bit of silicone so it would accept dye and other pigments. So what I've come up with is a fabric which is waterproof, fireproof, breathable, and roughly the weight of silk. Mm. And everybody said, that can't be done. And I said, here, look. So I patented it and I launched a company based around it. But I never would have thought of that problem until the father came to me and said, my son died in defense of his country and this is what happened to him. Can you help solve this problem so no one else has to die? And suddenly, when the right problem was put in front of me, it motivated me, and I came up with a good solution. Well, and you've you've had uh, uh, you've had the tools to work with the the question and produce a usable answer as well. And that's uh, uh, a life of curiosity served you well, I think. Yes, but also the middle life of good coincidences. You may know that. About 60% of the energy, 60% of the energy content of gasoline goes out your tailpipe as waste heat. So I said, well, okay, let's see if we can capture some of that heat and do something useful with it. There are a class of solid-state materials called thermoelectrics, mm-hmm. in which if you heat them, generate a small amount of electricity. So I took the tailpipe of my lawnmower and I cut it off, and then I put in some of these thermoelectric materials and used that electricity to break water into hydrogen and oxygen, and I pipe the oxygen back into my carburetor. So everybody else's engine runs on 20% oxygen and air. 
my engines were running on 30% oxygen. So they really looked like an engine on steroids, ran incredibly fast, probably 40% better fuel efficiency and no pollution. So essentially, you used uh, thermopiles in your tailpipe. Yes. But what makes it an amazing coincidence is when I was writing up the patent and doing a full-blown search, the two earliest patents on thermoelectric materials had been granted to my father 20 years before I was born. Oh, oh gosh. And I had zero knowledge of that because he died while I was in college. So it's almost as if he was looking down on me from the giant computer room in the sky and throwing paper airplanes that I should read. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever became of that patent? Where, where did that go? One of the big auto companies, who I'm not allowed to say their name, has licensed it. And when they get through some of their financial troubles, they want to actually try to implement it. The problem that they have is it has to go through all the EPA certifications and multi-year lifetime studies. One of the muffler add-on places is also licensed it hmm. because they don't have nearly those constraints. Mm-hmm. So sometimes just little things, and when we had one of the cars up on the lift, so they were showing me how they did all their stuff to replace the mufflers. I realized just how hot the engine block actually gets. And so I cobbled together a little heat exchanger and ran a metal hose through the firewall into the passenger compartment of the car. Because I love pizza, as do my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I can see where this is going. Yeah, we made a little pizza oven. And so we <laughs> finished cooking the pizza in the car. So when we got home, it was hot and tasty. See, if it was your kid, it'd be bacon. Oh, yeah. One of the big delivery pizza places has licensed that now. Yeah. But what makes it interesting is it's not a defensible marketing gimmick to say, we'll get the pizza there faster. Because anybody else can copy it, too. There's no way one patent Mm -hmm. can cover all of that. But they realized... "Hmm, By doing that, they can cut down the number of ovens that they have to have at the shop to prepare the pizzas and the amount of air conditioning to balance it out. So the way they're implementing it, they'll get a complete return on investment in three weeks. Oh, my gosh. Three weeks. Oh, wow. It's absolutely amazing. This is how you turn things things upside down and shake them until the the potential comes out. Uh-huh. So this is what what I do for a living now that I'm supposedly retired. You're busier than I don't ever. help companies and organizations find whole new ways to make money out of what they already have. Otherwise, we're going to be sending more and more jobs overseas. Have you heard of the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation? I haven't, Susan. Have you? Mm-mm. They sponsor a lot of stuff on PBS. Their whole reason for being is to stimulate innovation. About a year and a half ago, they sponsored their annual State of the Union for Entrepreneurs conference in Washington, and one of the speakers was the governor of Nebraska. And he stands up by saying, America has to understand innovation is not just for 20-somethings, it's for 30-somethings and occasionally a 40-something. Hey. Well, my colleagues held me in my seat 
as I was going to leap forward and go for his throat. Yeah. Fifty-something, yes. sixty-somethings, and seventy-somethings. Because if you look at the aging of America, there's an enormous amount of wisdom that my generation has that the rest of the world does not. It's not stuff you learn in graduate school. If that doesn't get harvested from our brains within maybe 10 years, it's going to be totally forgotten. It'll be worse than Alzheimer's. And the U.S. will continue to march ever more quickly backwards as the rest of the world develops things around us. So one of our absolute top national priorities should be to harvest the wisdom and the experience of people who are in their 50s and older. A different perspective, different motivations, but really want a legacy for their kids and their grandkids of having made a difference. I think one of the important aspects of that is that uh, the people who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s may have knowledge or understandings of, of uh, how the world works or their particular areas of expertise that they may not realize no one else has. I mean, it just feels, as you, as you incrementally build your base of knowledge, uh, you, are, uh, you are aware of your own growth personally, but at a certain point you cross that line where you're starting to know and understand things that no one else does. And I think there's a great, uh, I think there's a great uh, gold mine of information out there that's completely untapped uh, because of that. Well, do you remember during the Watergate days, Senator Sam Irvin? Sure. Mm-hmm. And he said, "I'm just an old country lawyer. Can you make this simple?" Well, <laughs> yeah, and it's like an alligator. He'd all of a sudden snap, and you're missing an arm. But the world is a two-by-two matrix. The x-axis has two states, conscious and unconscious, and the y-axis has competent and incompetent. So the four states are you know you know, you know you don't know, you don't know you know, and you don't know you don't know. American industry is very good in the know-you-know quadrant. When they know they don't know something, they put one or two people on and maybe buy a multi-client study and somehow get brilliant. But the don't know you know quadrant is the critical one. I looked around in my 30 years at DuPont at whenever I changed jobs or any of my people did, last thing they did was they emptied their filing cabinet in the trash can. Mm. They neither knowledge nor care was that the only remaining copy of that report of that piece of information. Uh, how frustrating. And the amount of work that gets redone and rediscovered because nobody even remembered about it is utterly staggering. Oh, yes. Uh, knowledge that does not become institutionalized uh, is, well, it's impossible to disseminate it to anyone else. Of course, I'm stating the obvious. I'm going to edit that part out. I mean, it's uh, my... Uh, my observation personally is that I'm uh, I'm constantly finding myself uh, questioning whether a I have all the pieces that I need in order to even begin to a- approach understanding a problem, and uh, and b whether uh, whether this might be the problem I need to spend the most time on, uh, and uh, I. F- 
I'm sorry. I'm just I'm struggling here. That's I'm, okay. I'm. It isn't often that uh, that we get to talk to somebody who operates so many levels above us. No, I'm just operating at different levels, not above or below. Um, I love to invent things, and my wife worked out a wonderful challenge. With each invention for each totally new application area I come up with, she will buy me a case of whatever first growth bordello I would like. Now, we we just sort of ignore the fact that I'm paying for it and she's drinking half of it, uh-huh. but it's turned it into a wonderful game. It's now an incentive to explore. She doesn't look at me like I'm psychotic. And all kinds of strange and wonderful things happen. She and my daughters are all coffee addicts. If they could walk around the house with an IV stand dripping coffee right into their veins, they'd be thrilled. Uh-huh. They could almost do that, but it's real hard to drive dragging an IV stand behind you. And <laughs> Backpack, they, I think. Well, they could take in vain, but I wouldn't. Mm. But all complained about how coffee in the travel mug doesn't taste very good at all. It didn't take long to figure out that the lid that keeps the coffee from spilling on you is also keeping the aroma from the coffee from getting to your nose. Eighty oh. percent of our sense of taste is what we smell, not what hits our tongue. So I came up with a special membrane and new lid for coffee mugs and founded a company specifically for that. So you can take the cup and turn it upside down, but it smells fabulous. Mm. Wow, that's uh, that's litalicious, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's actually called Vaporiety, but we had to come up with a marketing name. Marketing geeks are just weird. Yeah, marketing marketing wonks. Oh boy. Well, interestingly, we've found that that same mug can deliver calming or relaxing vapors. Imagine that you were getting an MRI. 30% of all MRIs get interrupted in the middle because of anxiety or claustrophobia. Hmm. We have a version of my mug now that blows calming vapors down the tunnel of an MRI machine. The hospital that's doing the clinical testing at this point believes they'll be able to get two additional patients through each machine each day at no additional cost because this will calm them down when they can't use drugs on them. So the same mug that we could probably sell at a coffee shop for five dollars. The hospital said they'd happily pay two hundred and fifty thousand for. No, my conscience doesn't have to struggle long with that one. <laughs> the FAA is testing it to keep air traffic controllers awake, mm-hmm. and one of the big trucking firms is testing it because I built them a device that uses Microsoft Connect to watch the movement of the head of the driver. Mm-hmm. So if he's not staying focused on the road, this detects it and blasts him in the face with coffee smell. Yeah, I'd, I'd uh, nod my head down just to get a jolt, you know. Uh, we have other ways of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, don't, we won't say those on the radio. This is... Who knows who will be listening. <laughs> so what but, are you working oh, on... What are you working on now? What's the next? What's the next big thing? I've developed a whole new way of keeping human blood at the proper temperature for optimal efficiency for transfusions. 
Yeah, it's called a human being. Well, after you take it out of the human being. Oh, okay. Because red blood can only last for about 27 or 28 days before you have to throw it away. Mm-hmm. And if it gets more than one degree plus or minus the ideal temperature after you've chilled the first time, and it stays there for only 30 minutes, you have to throw it away. That's so about 2% of all the blood that we take for transfusions gets wasted because they can't maintain the temperature just right. Let's say you're doing a big operation. and I'm adjunct faculty at Drexel Medical School, too. And we'll check out from the blood bank what we think we're going to need. And we always take out a little more because if the patient has an aneurysm or something like that that bursts, you don't have 10 minutes to go get more blood. You have about 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. But we try to keep the blood at the right temperature. We'll pack it in ice or something like that. But the tests have shown we're nowhere close to staying within the range. So I've developed a whole new device. And the patent is supposedly getting filed tomorrow, so I guess it's okay to tell you. Which we're originally going to call the blood brick, but it's a range of materials and insulation. So you drop the blood at 4 degrees C into this container. You seal it with tamper-proof tape. When you bring it back, they know how long you've had it out. And if the tape has not been broken, then they know with absolute certainty that it stayed in the proper range, and they can just put it back in the big blood refrigerators. Oh, I see. Nice. So we're estimating it could save as much as 1% to 2% of the blood supply in the U.S. How many lives is that? That's a lot. We're about to start testing it on keeping organs alive, like kidneys. Last year, 1,800 kidneys were thrown away because there was no suitable recipient within the amount of time that they had to get the kidney to them. Oh, my. So I'm on the verge of solving that one, too. Same basic principles, just I wanted another case of wine. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh blood's going to work for kidneys. My wife hasn't agreed that it'll work for hearts. If we can work on congressional brains, that should be worth at least two cases. (laughs) Yeah, how much for livers? After all that cases of wine, you're going to need it. (laughs) Well, age improves with wine, that's for sure. (laughs) That's good. I like that. So that's what I'm working on right now. You mentioned uh, you mentioned that uh, that the 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 patent should be coming through. Uh, By the time this gets on the air, it'll be through. But uh, it brings to mind one of the things that you said that uh, people are afraid of. Actually, a couple of a couple of things. that you said people are afraid of with respect to being creative and 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 innovating and one of those is uh the fear that someone's going to steal your idea and the other of which is that people are afraid of success uh the fear that uh, someone's going to steal your idea of course is 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 predicated on the fear that the one i the one good idea is the only one you're ever going to have so it has to be jealously guarded. And uh, I, I think this is probably one of the biggest mistakes uh, creative thinkers make. You uh-huh. know, there's nothing more dangerous than an idea, especially if the one is the only is all you've got. Well, if you, you only have one place to sell them. 
I can believe that. But let me give you a real perfect example of that. Remember the oil well spill in the Gulf? Sure, vividly. Well, one of the characteristics of Gulf crude is it's very high in paraffin, much higher than normal oils. So just for the fun of it, I built the equivalent of a giant cold finger. It was about eight feet long, and I just pumped dry ice and acetone through it. And then I rammed it down a, an oil pipe that we had near here, a refinery, and it froze the oil in a matter of seconds and completely plugged the pipe. So as long as you kept it cold, the oil didn't come out. Well, I got a hold of the people who worked for Admiral Allen, who was in charge of trying to clean up all this mess, and he took it to BP, and then they called me back and said, you know, you put us in a really terrible spot here, because the eye didn't come, did not come from within. So here's the mess we're in. If we take your idea, use it, and it works, now we've got to explain to people all around the world why this balding old chemist who's never seen an oil well came up with something that all of us didn't come up with, or we try your idea and it didn't work, then we have to justify why we listened to you when we didn't listen to the experts. If we can't touch your idea, we can't even acknowledge that we've seen it. Oh, and for heaven's sake! They could sakes. see the video demonstration. They knew it would work. Oh, it was for very heaven's sake! Very for everybody. That's just well, the, the, the answer is hire you. <laughs> then, then it's coming from within. Um, you're right. That would have been an answer. I hadn't thought about that one. Gosh. Obviously, they didn't think about it either. Well, maybe do it before the next next pipe blows. Um, it's just I I find that amazing. I mean, it's you you think that uh, they're more concerned about doing the right thing than they are about. Oh, come on. Well, I corporate I America, please. But it's the the whole not invented here syndrome is is. Uh, uh, more of a problem than I realized. Well, it is a big problem because we've made a strategic error. When somebody tries something, they either succeed or fail. And if you don't succeed by making a lot of money, you get penalized for failure. It mm -hmm. ignores the most common middle ground, which you did a really great job, but because of forces you either didn't know or couldn't control, you didn't succeed. But you didn't fail. You did a great job. We don't reward people for that. We penalize them for that. We have to fix that. Well, and out we have to eliminate the zero-sum game. You have to get, you know, like in, in school, sometimes you deserve partial credit. Yes. Well, and, and sometimes you deserve credit for at least demonstrating how not to do something. Uh-huh. You know? It's like like uh, you go off and you try something, and then and uh, the the thing falls flat on its face, and and you know then at that point you can wait, you can uh, you don't have to spend any more energy chasing that particular rabbit. You can turn your attention to some other idea, and you've saved the company, you know, potentially millions of dollars. Or, you know, that's one way of looking at it. But but the, but the fear that people have, uh, the fear of people have of of succeeding, often exceeds their fear of failure, and I find this very curious. Well, as an exercise in 
both my consulting and my graduate school teaching, I'll surprise a class one day and say, one of you has to stand up and talk about innovation you tried to get through in your world and what happened. I did one of these just a couple of weeks ago. And one of the students, this was a continuing ed class, talked about something he tried to do. And after explaining that it didn't work, without warning, I turned the class into a courtroom. I said, you were charged with subversive innovation. And you took company time, company resources, you worked on something that you chose, which you had no blessings from management, nor any reason to believe they would do anything with your idea. And you weren't doing what you were getting paid for. As other students in the class got tapped to be judge, HR manager, CEO, and the rest became the jury. <clears throat> it's normally about a 45-minute exercise, but these kids really got into it. They went on for about four hours. I was wow. getting real hungry and grouchy. <laughs> I'll bet, yeah. So we called a halt to it. But I had four executives from one of the large <clears throat> medical firms sitting in on the session. Mm-hmm. And they came down and said, we have learned more in four hours about what makes innovators tick than we have in the last 25 years. <laughs> and the reason this worked is there were no politics of hierarchy in the communication. You didn't worry you were going to get fired for what she said. And we were all going out for beer and pizza afterwards. Mm-hmm. So you could say whatever you really believed, what you thought the other person needed to hear. And these executives had never seen that kind of communication in a hierarchical regulated environment and just blew them away. Oh, yeah. And, and it never happens because uh, in, an, in a hierarchical uh, organization, um, you can easily be, be dismissed for taking the wrong side or, uh, yeah. you know, there's, you've, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot on the line. So you can't, you can't be honest most of the time. And uh, uh, the, stif- the uh, stifling uh, effect that this has on innovation is profound because only large corporations in, in general can afford to bring an idea to, uh, to uh, uh, a, a commercially available conclusion. Well, corporations don't compensate their people commensurate with what they actually contribute is more what salary grade level you are and how many reports is your name on. So what I've done in the companies I've founded, if somebody does something out of the ordinary, especially good, precisely at 10 o'clock the next day, I have Domino Pizza deliver three large pizzas with everything to them at their desk. <laughs> there are a couple of reasons for this. First, 10 o'clock is when your blood sugar is its lowest. You're so hungry, you'd eat Formica at that point. Mm-hmm. Secondly, yeah. I've never had anybody work for me who could devour three large pizzas by himself. They're aromatic. The word goes out over the airwaves. Everybody, hey, somebody did something good. Free food. Come on down. <laughs> uh-huh. If you share food, then they'll share food. And instead of dividing you by checks that are handed out, and you say, well, I did more than he did. Why do you get $500 more than I did? The food becomes the glue that holds the organization together and makes people work together. 
That is that's 20,000 years ago it was mammoth. Nobody everyone's afraid that someone will come steal their their mammoth. And mm-hmm. uh then but but then everybody has to come help you eat it or otherwise you've got a lot of rotting elephant meat. Yeah, and you you, you can bring home three large pizzas to your kids. They'll be grease burgers by the time you get home. That's true. But Mother Nature was the inspiration for this. I don't know how familiar you are with vampire bats, but if you go out hunting blood at night and you come back and you haven't gotten any, if you have already established that you will give blood to the other bats, they'll give you blood. But if you've never done that, they'll let you starve to death. Interesting. That's interesting. So there's much that we can learn from nature that helps teach us how to be more effective as human beings. Cooperative. Somebody should put that into a vampire story. (laughs) Well, many people have called me a bloody fool, but I didn't realize it was quite that way. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you're a bloody genius. That's the thing. Wow. (laughs) Noam Chomsky has argued that we are pre-wired for language. I disagree. We're pre-wired for innovation, and language is just one of the innovations we've had to develop for safety, food, and procreation. There are many other innovations that we've come up with. If you look at the history of man as a sentient being, there have been tens of thousands of major innovations over the years. Now, if you look at the genetic lineage of Homo sapiens, we all evolved from the same small group of natives in eastern Africa about 50,000 years ago. And Mm -hmm. this is determined by looking at mitochondrial DNA, which only comes from the mother. There's no contribution from the father. Mm -hmm. So we all come from the same small herd of of natives. Mm -hmm. So then you've got this big corpus of innovations there's two possibilities. Either we as a species are innovative, or little green men from Mars came down and did all these things for us. And there's no mythology anywhere in the world that talks seriously about little green men from Mars. So there's your proof that we are intrinsically able to do this. We just need to either be forced into it by an ice age, or seduced into it by our hormones. And sometimes it's just sort of fortuitous. If you look at the history of Homo sapiens as a farmer, finally about 11,000 years ago, they just started growing crops, wheat, corn, other stuff. But oddly, at the exact same time, the animal protein content in what they ate went up even faster than the vegetable protein but they were still a couple thousand years away from domesticating animals. Well, what turns out had happened was the birds were not stupid as they were migrating. Hey, there's a farm down there. Should we go have lunch there or go off into the woods where we might get eaten? So when the birds started attacking the farms, the farm killed the birds. As long as they were there, they might as well eat them. Uh Aha. So there's all kinds of threads to really understand innovation and be able to multiply to the benefit of mankind. It's everything from 
anthropology to social biology. No Facebook, though. That has no beneficial value. <laughs> and there's all kinds of things. Because <clears throat> it used to be that the survival of the fittest meant whatever traits you had <clears throat> would be beneficial a couple thousand years down the road. But now with technology and nutrition, you can do things today that will change other people's lives tomorrow. That is a whole different paradigm of innovation, reward, and to some people it's incredibly stimulating and a lot of fun, too. Do you think that the uh, the pace of innovation is... is uh, uh, let me rephrase the question. Do you think that the pace of innovation is... Uh, oh, no, that's not a rephrase. Okay, third try. Do you think that the the increase in the pace of innovation is responsible for more increase? Uh, uh, sort of a... Does uh, faster equal more? Yeah. Do, uh, I, what I'm seeing, what I observe is that as innovation... Uh, as, as we innovate, we create more opportunity for other people uh, to see new things around them that they haven't seen before, which in turn gives them the materials that they need in, in w with which to innovate themselves. Absolutely correct. <clears throat> Innovation comes from three sources. Needs, dissatisfactions, or curiosities. Needs are things that you have to have to stay alive. Those are, they change a little bit over time. But dissatisfactions change enormously quickly. With all the new events in communication, people are aware now of things that they didn't even realize they didn't know. So the more you get people, gee, life could be better than that, the more they will try to innovate. You're ratcheting their expectations up, and that triggers the innovation. You do have to be a little careful, though, that you can overwhelm people. We had one semi-work facility that we ran one shift a day, five days a week. And we got the bright idea, let's automate it so it runs three shifts a day, seven days a week. <laughs> so we get 21 runs a week instead of five. And we were stunned to see that the intellectual output of the semi-works went down rather than up. With the flood of additional data... We were overwhelming our people. Instead of giving them time to think about what the data showed and what could be used for, we turned them into bookkeepers, and they were finding out, how do I put this in a notebook? How do I catalog it? How do I report it? They stopped looking forward, and they were forced to look at their feet right now and say, how do I get all this documented for tomorrow? I think uh, I think a big part of that is, um, you know, people, people don't realize that... Uh, uh, the need to communicate the information um, uh, can place such a burden on the creative process that at a certain point you you reach the point of no return, and you and you can reach this fairly quickly, especially in you know when you're working with teams of people on on complex technical subjects. Another thing which is often forgotten is if an employee makes a big contribution. It's usually because they put in some of their own time. And the folks who make the biggest sacrifice, what happens with the employee's family? Because they're giving up the, the time of that person. 
So I've made it a very aggressive program in the companies that I've run to say thank you to the families. For example, if an employee does something pretty nice, I'll arrange for a limo to take the employee and their spouse out for a very elegant dinner on the company. I have a car and driver do it so they can drink as much as they want. And I send along a babysitter for their kids. And we've pre-researched what their kids like to do, so the babysitters, all armed and ready, make it the most fabulous evening for the kids. It's gotten to the point with one of my companies now where I've had wives call me up and say, can't you get him more to do? I want him to spend the weekend working <laughs> great dinners afterwards. We love those dinners. <laughs> That's, wow. I've got it to one of the more progressive uh, management concepts I've heard in a long time. He's probably had some splendid work done there, too. Well, it got a little far with another husband and wife team because they had such a fabulous evening that the husband called me that night from limo on the way home. And he said, this evening was fabulous. It was more fun than sex. Oh, thanks. <laughs> His wife was in the car and hey. it didn't well. Put a mildly. <laughs> Somebody sleeping on the sofa. Yeah. I mean, it's nice as an anecdote, but mm -hmm. he did come in with a black eye the next morning. <laughs> Said he tripped and fell. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Penzak, uh, it has been quite an honor to have you on the show. Um, it's... Uh, it has been a fascinating discussion of, of ideation and innovation and, uh, and invention. And we're very glad you were able to spend the time with us. Well, it's been my pleasure and my privilege because kids are really the most important product we have right now. They will encounter challenges that we as adults can't even imagine. If we don't spend the time figuring out how to innovate and how to teach them to innovate, we're dooming the human race to failure. So there's really nothing more important that I can possibly do than help to push out the word on how we think, and how we should think, and how we should reward people for thinking. So I'm very appreciative you gave me a podium and you didn't snicker too loudly or recommit me to the mental hospital for some of my rather outlandish thoughts. I just want to sit in your classroom and at your feet, <laughs> honestly. Well, I'm... you can get some of my lectures off YouTube. Okay. okay. Well, we'll look those up and we'll post those uh, on on our uh, website to make sure everyone sits at your we feet. We will. Uh, we will link them uh, mm -hmm. with the announcement of this uh, this broadcast. Thank you Don't again. Buy the book because Ronald McDonald House gets the money. Oh, well, that's excellent. That's that's two two reasons for it to be. Yeah, Amazon still had the book, at least as of yesterday. Oh, they so, had it this afternoon because I and just And the picked, book's title is, once again? Innovation for Underdogs. And I, I must explain that I'm a serious Bichon Frise lover. I have six at the moment. We, we, love, we are dog people. Is it me? We are also dog people. Good. Well, I was taking a nap on the kitchen couch. And all six of Bichons jumped up on top of me and fell asleep without waking me. Uh, 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 <laughs> and my son took a photograph of this and said, Now I understand what you do, Dad. 
It's innovation under dogs. Oh. Oh. So that's where the title came from. Lovely. Well, thank you again. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it immensely. This has been episode 35 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for October 26th, 2013. Our guest this week has been the scientist, inventor, professor, and compulsive innovator, Dr. David Pensack. Dr. Penzak is the author of Innovation for Underdogs, available from Amazon.com. All proceeds from the sale of this book go to benefit the Ronald McDonald House Charities. You can find out more about Dr. David Penzak at davidpenzak.com, and there are many of his lectures available for viewing on YouTube. This episode will air again Sunday, October 27th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyrighted 2013 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-1. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.